Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And we're going to do so by uh, looking at uh, Ecclesiastes 11. We've gone through uh, 1 through 10 already. Uh, we have the outlines up at Preparing You, and many of the audios are up there. And eventually, we will have the complete study of Ecclesiastes by probably either today or next week. And... Uh, it's really been kind of a journey going back and looking at what I'd have to almost say is an obscure book because so many people, if you ask the average Christian, you know, what's in the book of Ecclesiastes? <laughs> Most of them would not have a clue. I mean, you could even ask many preachers. I've, I've brought it up uh, in front of preachers when I didn't know that much about it myself. Uh, you know, I'd been to the seminary and and learned what they told me, but uh, the average uh, minister, they give you kind of the uh, deer in the headlight look when you mention it, as if it uh, is it's irrelevant uh, to the biblical text. It's just one of those little minor books that nobody hardly reads anymore. But it's actually heavily quoted, and uh, there's a lot of information in there. It It is a little... I wouldn't say ambiguous, but it's a little harder to follow in some ways than other books. But I, I you know, I'm not going to measure it on a scale. It's certainly not the most difficult book to understand, uh, and it has a lot of very relevant quotes in it that uh, almost everybody should uh, be uh, familiar with because we find uh, references to it in the New Testament. Since we're in eleven, I'm. I'm going to jump around a little bit because I'll take a little peek at a review of how we got to this. But it begins with a quote that many people have heard. Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. Now, if we're going to take the Bible literally, the way a lot of people want to take it literally, you know, like there were actually two trees in the Garden of Paradise before walking around and they were naked and uh, they built altars of stone and burnt up sheep on those altars of stone and that made God happy because it sent a sweet savor up. But if you burnt up vegetables on the altar, God was not pleased. Well, you know, those are literal interpretations of what we read in Genesis. But is it meant to be literal? If it is meant to be literal, if everything in the Bible is literal, then why are you not going down to the lake this Saturday or possibly Sunday and skipping tortillas or pizza pizza across the lake uh, because you're supposed to be casting thy bread upon the waters and hope that it's going to come back to you after many days. I mean, that's literally what he says. 
But that's not what he means. Nobody does that. I don't, I don't, I've never come across a church that goes down and skips tortillas across the lake or the river or wherever you, you know, the swimming pool out back. It's not about throwing bread out on the lake and hoping it comes back to you. It's not. It's not what it's about. But that's literally what he says. So, if that's not what he means, then maybe we can go back and look at Genesis again. And naked actually might mean without certain types of authority. That you have the authority to take care of the fishes and the, the animals and and the beasts of the fields and and you have a dominion over these things. But what are these things? What what are they really talking about? There seems to be a, a great possibility that people are losing dominion, losing rights. I mean, dominion is right. A right to do certain things. And now we see world orders coming about or what have you, whatever they want to call it, New World Order or World Economic Forum or the Great Reset or or... You know, you can put all kinds of labels on it, but there's definitely people out there trying to gain control over your day-to-day choices. So that no way on earth can you say you have dominion. You don't have dominion over your own labor anymore. I mean, you work where you want to work, but a portion of your labor is going to be taken away from you and given to somebody else. And you've signed agreements that give power to men to do that. So you don't have dominion over 100% of your labor. Oh, you only get to keep a portion of it. Just like what we see in Genesis when the people of Israel went into the bondage of Egypt. That was, that was the bondage of Egypt is that a portion of your labor no longer belonged to you. Literally, your animals didn't belong to you either. A portion of your animals didn't belong to you. Because you you gave up all because there was a famine and you had to in order to survive you had to take the benefits from the pharaoh and he made a deal that one fifth year labor would now belong to him and he gave you land to live on but he didn't give you an loyal title to it he just gave you a legal title to it you get to live on this land but you're in bondage now in exodus we see that bondage got worse or rigorous. But you were in bondage back in Genesis. This is one of the things that was mentioned a couple of times in the study by Jordan Peterson of Exodus with his scholars and writers and people who were helping him in the symposium on Exodus. They didn't seem to get it that the bondage began when you were in Genesis. And you went into that bondage because you wouldn't hear the cries of your brother who you chose to sell into bondage, into slavery. You you were willing to put your brother into slavery so you ended up going into slavery. That's a process like casting your bread upon the waters and hoping it comes back to you after many days. They're talking about a natural process. That is a part of the law of nature established by the God of nature, who is the God of creation. 
who set all this into motion according to principles that we call divine will. But we also call those same principles right reason. We also call those principles natural law. Those are convertible phrases. Now, lots of different people will have opinions as to what right reason is, just the same as lots of people have an opinion as to what does it mean to cast thy bread upon the waters. For thou shalt find it after many days. What do you think that means? Now, if you're a regular listener, you probably have a pretty good idea. Some modern Christians have no idea. And I'm sure we could get a lot of different speculation. If you want to give me your speculations on that, you'll have to listen to our afternoon show and call in and tell me what you think that means. I've heard people stumbling at trying to explain it. And I've heard some people kind of get it right. But we're going to equate this right to the New Testament and the New Testament church before we're done. But, uh, you know, let's put it in context a little bit. We won't go do a whole review of Ecclesiastes because we've already got that in some of the earlier recordings. And we certainly have it at Preparing You where you can go through and look at each individual one. After every single show, I will enhance uh, the the side panel notes that help lead you to understand what is written in the actual text. In In the text of Ecclesiastes 9, it talks about death comes to us all. But it also warns us that the heart of a man is evil and madness. Like I said, the word madness shows up in Ecclesiastes more than any other place in the Bible. Although, when the word madness is seen in the Bible, there's more than one word that is translated into madness. And it's not always translated into madness. So, it's difficult to tell unless you're looking at it in the original Hebrew. But he tells you to enjoy life with the ones you love. That's okay. That's fine. But he's he's also warning you about folly. Wisdom better is better than folly, but isn't folly and wisdom opposite things? Of course, now when they talk about wisdom, there's the wisdom of men and there's the wisdom of God. And when the men depend upon their personal wisdom, That ends up in folly. And of course, when men eat of the tree of knowledge, then that, rather than the tree of life, when they make the tree of knowledge the source of their choices, rather than the tree of life, then folly will take place. And of course, that's the original sin, but that sin is not unique to the garden. It's to us every day. We had a call in, I think it was last week, and he was talking about, you know, why are certain thoughts coming into my head? Why am I making certain decisions? Why is the Holy Spirit really concerned about these little minutiae of my, of my day? Sometimes the Holy Spirit is concerned with a minutiae of your day, the, the the tiny little micro events. As a matter of fact, 
that still small voice of the Holy Spirit that gives revelation to the prophets to write these whole books can give you revelation about what to do from moment to moment in your everyday life. Whether it's, you know, what do I do today? Do I mow hay? Do I bale hay? I mean, we have an intellectual understanding of that. Just before the show, I closed all kinds of pictures on my uh, uh, computer that had to do with the internal works of a 425 New Holland baler. <laughs> because I had some questions about that this week. And uh, we uh, had to look it up. And so we spent several hours at the University of YouTube figuring out why are my bales not getting their knots tied properly. And of course, we had a number of options to try. And somehow I tried one and I fixed it. We were having this perpetual problem that would come and go and come and go. When we first started haying, we had no problem. Every single knot tied, tied, tied. And all of a sudden we had a little bit of a problem. And it got worse and worse and worse. And what was it? One of the most complex pieces of uh, simple farm machinery I've ever seen is the knot tire on a New Holland baler. They haven't changed it years and years and years and years. Whoever invented it was a, a genius. He could see all the parts moving at once. <laughs> and uh, it ties two perfect little knots under the most rigorous conditions out there in the field. And one guy just had an ability to engineer it. But then we have to run it. <laughs> Occasionally, we, we misapply something or we get something out of alignment and we have to get it back into alignment. That's what's going on with the Bible. If you get one little verse out of alignment, it can lead you down the wrong road. That's why I thought it was so important that Jordan Peterson in his symposium would understand that the bondage of Egypt began in Genesis. And, and they even mention it in one episode, just really briefly. Oz, if you go listen to our series on Exodus, I will mention Oz. And, and we're putting together a series and hopefully we'll start the videos uh, looking at some of the things they said that mislead you. Doesn't tie the knot so that you're connected to the wisdom of God. But in fact, it it causes you to listen to the wisdom of men, which again is folly. The wisdom of God is better than the wisdom of men because the wisdom of men is folly. There's an evil net that snares men. It's talked about in Proverbs. It's talked about in Psalms. It's talked about... Uh, Paul talks about it in the New Testament. And it's a table that you eat at that is a snare. It's an evil net that is a snare. That is why... People go back into bondage, back into the bondage of Egypt. The bondage of Egypt was a core B system of statutory bondage. 
there was a rule. There was a law. It was still the law. Back when I was in the seminary in Egypt, it was still a law. I wasn't in the seminary in Egypt, but back in Egypt when I was in the seminary in California, it was still a law in Egypt that one-fifth, 20% of your labor belonged to the government. They were still in the bondage of Egypt. But when the Israelites left Egypt, they were no longer in that bondage. They no longer had this social safety net that that 20% of your labor was supposed to provide in the treasuries of Egypt, which were often temple granaries. That was, yeah, that's how you stored a lot. I mean, they had the gold belonged to uh, the Pharaoh. Silver belonged to the Pharaoh. They had some other form of money circulating in Egypt at that time, which seems to be these little clay scarabs and tablets that was commodity money. I mean, you produce 20 bricks, you know, 100 bricks, 20 of them belonged to the Pharaoh. The other 80 you could use to trade for whatever else you needed. And the same if you grew grain. In Goshen was, you know, I've seen the grain fields in Goshen. You know, because they irrigate with the water of the Nile. And they grow all kinds of different grain. And because it's sunny year-round, they can grow lots of different grains there. They'll plant one crop at one time, another crop at another time, and harvest it. They don't have the winter. But they need the floods. They need the floods to water the the crops. And they have a system of dikes and, and canals and probably now pipes to get that water where it needs to go. And that's why they had grain. And during the droughts, a lot of other people did not have grain. I irrigate uh, fields out uh, on the desert with artesian waters and springs that just come up. I mean, everywhere you go, there's just rocks and sagebrush and and, uh, you know, desert grasses. And then all of a sudden there's meadows. They're all irrigated by water that comes up out of the ground. We don't depend on rain. And Egypt depended on the Nile because they didn't get any rain. But they made lots of things out of clay because the Nile also brought, brought things down, clay down in the river so they could make these bricks. In order to make the bricks, they needed straw to mix in with the bricks. So they also grew grain. So those were commodity items, but they actually had a a little scarab that was issued by the government with little markings on it. It was made out of clay and baked. And you could use that to exchange as if it was money. It had no value except in their commercial Economy within Egypt. If you wanted to buy something from another country, they were going to want either gold or silver or some sort of commodity. And the major commodity that was shipped out of Egypt, besides stone, stone was another big commodity that was shipped out of Egypt. But grain. They shipped grain 
all over the world, even at the time of Rome. They were still shipping grain to Rome. Thousands and thousands and thousands of bushels of grain were coming in from Egypt to feed the people of Rome. There were acres and acres of silos that they put this grain in. And there was free bread that was produced by the government to give out to the poor. A whole economy of free bread baked in government ovens or in private ovens and then they sold the the bread to the government and the government gave the bread out. And so the government had standards where you you had to stamp your bread as you baked it with a symbol, a licensed symbol, so that if they found that there was filler in your flour or the bread was contaminated, they knew who to come after and blame and fine. Of course, at that time, which is the time of Christ, shortly before Christ, Rome was again going into a system of corby. They had already put the Gauls in a system of corby, where they had to pay a portion of what they produced to Rome. But the citizens of Rome, even, the, the uh, what they call Quirus citizens of Rome, not not what they call Paul. They call Paul Romeos, which is also a citizen of Rome. It's actually a Roman citizen. We we could change the, it like that. But if you were Quirus, which is the other word for citizenship in Rome, you were still subject. But if you were Romeos, you could not be tried in administrative courts. You could only be tried in courts of law. But if you don't know all that stuff, when you read the Bible, you'll, you won't realize what's really going on. If you don't understand that the tables are a snare, that the dainties of the king are a snare, that, that you, but it's, it, you want to talk about literal in the Bible. Jesus said, you are not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who call themselves benefactors, but exercise authority one over the other. So, you're not to be getting benefits from men who exercise authority over your neighbor and take away from your neighbors so that you can have the benefaction of those rulers. Because that's, that would clearly be a covetous practice. You would, you'd be desiring benefits at the expense of your neighbor. You would literally be making a slave of your neighbor where your neighbor had to give you, had to work without pay to provide you with benefits. That would be anti-Christian. Nobody who was a Christian would think that that's okay. Because that would be coveting your neighbor's goods through the men who call themselves benefactors. The men from governments who call themselves benefactors. Now, if you followed that line of thinking, then you should know something's wrong in Christianity today. Modern Christianity is not the Christianity of Christ. But that that may be hard to swallow. But we're going to look at Ecclesiastes and see if this isn't the thing that's always been there. When we come back, the keys of the kingdom. Well, welcome back to the keys of the kingdom. So, 
And uh, and looking at Ecclesiastes, looking at these different chapters that we've been going over, uh, and talking about this bondage of Egypt and the benefactors who exercise authority and Christians should not be that way. They shouldn't go to men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. So where do they go? Well, they go to church. Because church was where you practice pure religion. And pure religion was taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. Not through force, fear, or violence. And this is the distinction between a Christian community and the Roman community. You know, there's a great deal of evidence out there that uh, Romans, Roman soldiers, were among some of the early converts to Christianity. I mean, we've got Paul writing the Romans. What, what, What are they writing? You know, these Romans have forsaken the religions of Rome, the public religion of Rome which provided welfare through the tables of the temple of Jupiter and other temples. I mean, the temples all had function. We've talked about that. I mean, the temple of Mineta was coining money. That was what they did there. It was a government building. They coined money. You you brought in gold, you know, like Augustus would bring in bullion. And I want you to make thousands of gold coins. And that's what they did at the Temple of Mineta. That's why we call money money, is because it comes from the word Mineta. That's that was a government building. There were no, you know, there were priests there, but those priests were just to make sure that nobody was pilfering the gold and that the gold in the coins were of a certain standard. And they had they understood systems of collation where you could regulate the amount of silver and gold and, and money. And they were just professional mentors. They were running the mint. But that was called the Temple of Mineta. It wasn't religion. But it was important to religion because religion was how you performed your duty to God and your fellow man. And your duty to your fellow man was to take care of your fellow man in time of need. You know, the Good Samaritan approach. That this guy's in the ditch, we, we gotta go help him out. Get him out of the ditch, get him back on his feet, get him so he's a productive member of society. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of the the things that we find throughout the recent studies in archaeology. Because they're, they're, you know, every time they build a building in Israel (laughs) today, (laughs) there's an archaeologist about five steps away because they're uncovering tombs, they're uncovering... You know, I heard an interesting thing that when they uncover a tomb, which is like a cave built into the rock, and there'll be ossuaries in these caves. And uh, the ossuary is a bone box, you know, usually cut out of limestone. And so the, the bodies are put in there, they decay, they end up mummifying and turning into just bones, and then they take those bones... And they put them in a bone box, and the bone box will have the name of the person on it, maybe a few artifacts, but it's made big enough so you can get all the bones in without breaking the bones. Like the femur bone is one of the longer ones. 
And there's thousands, tens of thousands of these ossuaries that they uncover all the time. And uh, everywhere you dig in those areas, you find something. Well, if they find one of these caves that are full of these ossuaries, they they take the ossuaries out and they they take the bones out of the ossuary and they go and bury them. And they don't, and I think this is almost criminal, they've been burying them where they're almost like an unmarked graves. But they, that's what they do. But then they close up the cave where all this stuff was. And they actually have a law in Israel that when you close up that cave, you have to put a pipe down into the cave. So they have to drill a hole down into the cave and they put a pipe down there. You know, it's like six-inch pipe. Maybe a little less. Maybe four-inch pipe. And it goes down there and it comes out and it goes up about six feet or so or five feet and then it turns over and then bends down so that you don't have rain going down. Things don't just fall down there. Somebody was actually trying to send a camera down one of those and they found garbage in the pipe. And so they cleaned out the garbage and it was like water bottles and trash and and people were just stuffing it down the pipe. Why do you think they put the pipe going down into this cave that they've sealed up and built over? It's to let the spirits that dwell in there come out. <laughs> That's actually a law. That you have to put this pipe and they have to paint it green so you know what it's there for. And you'll see them sticking up in Israel in odd places. It's because underneath there's a tomb. There, there's, you know, like the tomb that they put Christ in. They roll the stone over. And, and he, his body is put in there except for he supposedly came out of the tomb. And, and angels rolled the stone back. And he came out and he's walking around. He isn't dead anymore. That's the story. And, uh, I'm sticking to it. <laughs> so, but, if they found that today, and they closed that tomb up, because they were building an apartment house there or something, there'd be a green pipe sticking up out of it. And, and some kid's probably gonna throw trash paper into the pipe you know had to be somewhat tall kid but that that actually goes on but the every day new archaeological discoveries are found some people like that some people try to cover it up because some of the archaeological discoveries as we discovered in our series on exodus contradict what a lot of people want to believe the bible actually says and but part of the problem is that you know we get people saying that the Bible is literal, but then when they says something literal that they don't want to believe, then it's not literal anymore. You're just talking figuratively, or they just look at it like they can't even see the connection. Again, the deer in the headlight look. So we talked about these evil net that snares man. Uh, which was at least talked about in Ecclesiastes 9. And immediately the next section is besieged by rulers. Well, they're besieged by rulers because the people are eating the dainties of rulers. And Proverbs has already told us in the book directly before Ecclesiastes that if you be a man of appetite, put a knife to your throat. 
if you be a man of appetite and sit to eat with a ruler at his table, put a knife to your throat, because he serves deceitful meats. And Psalms had just told us that what should have been for your welfare, eating at that table of kings, is a snare and a trap. And that's not irrelevant because it was in Psalms and that's the Old Testament because Paul quotes it and talks about a table of which we should not eat. And of course the table he's talking about is the table of those men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. Who provide a table through force. We should not eat of that table. Because according to Paul eating of that table is idolatry. Because it's a covetous. You're desiring benefits at the expense of your neighbor. The same as the brothers of Joseph desired benefits by his absence and were able to bring about his absence by selling him into bondage. And so you don't want to sell your brother into bondage or you'll go into bondage. You don't want to make your brother a resource for benefits for you or you will go into bondage. Because see, if you make your brother a resource for you, that's like taking a bite out of your brother, your neighbor, even the stranger in your midst. If you take a bite out of him, you may be devoured. That's New Testament. Now, he's not talking about zombies. Well, not literally zombies. But what happens when you start taking a bite out of your neighbor? You become a zombie. And you you walk around not caring who you hurt. Because you're blind. You, you, you don't see what you're doing. Your Your conscience is seared. And you think it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods as long as you do it through rulers. But that's why they talk about you're besieged by rulers in Ecclesiastes 9. But they also talk about the wisdom of the poor man. But they talk about it being despised. Because the the poor, and I've seen this on the missions, where you'll find poor countries are closer to the kingdom of God than the rich country. Especially, you know, like you go to Santa Domingo and you go out to the countryside and you'll find lots of people who don't have a sechela. A sechela is like our social security card. There's a lot of people out there who don't get the sechela. I don't know if it's for religious reasons or whatever it is for... But they go and work and nothing is taken out of their labor. If they have a seshula, a portion of their labor is taken away. But if you don't have a seshula, they will pay you less. <laughs> so so it's kind of a tit for tat. But you don't have access to social welfare if you don't have a seshula and the number that's on it. You know, it's a it's like a social security card. And, but there's a lot of people in that country that don't have them. You can go to Bulgaria. You'll find people who don't don't have the card, don't have the number. They don't get on airplanes. They don't fly anywhere. But they, amongst those people, they take care of each other. They create the social bonds that are were so necessary 
for Israel to be a free nation. Because they did not force the offerings. All the offerings that were brought to the tabernacle of Christ, to the Jehovah Nisi altars that Moses set up, had to be free will offerings. You hear that over and over again. They don't use the word charity. They use the word free will offering. But charity and free will offering, that's pretty much the same thing. But the offerings of rulers, those are not free will offerings. Those are forced offerings. But the poor man gave them the wisdom of how to resist the rulers. They're telling you in Ecclesiastes 9 how to resist the new, what is it, the the world economic form, the, 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 the great reset. What you have to do. You have to take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. Through a voluntary system where you grant a choice, you you accept the fact that your brother has a choice as to what to give, when to give, and how much to give. You're not going to force his offering. You're not going to set the table of your system of welfare to force. That was the Christian thing to do. That was the Israelite thing to do. But they were constantly strained from that. That's the wise man hears that that is the only way. That is the way of Christ. Because that's the last heading I have is the wise man hears in quiet. He is hearing not by his intellectual knowledge. And I'll take you back to, I think it was the last program that we did in the afternoon. And uh, that will be a part of the Ecclesiastes studies but somebody was asking why am I thinking about this is that the Holy Spirit why am I and the fact is is that you're all in the garden right now you just can't see how the garden works you can the garden is a protected place you're all in that protected place but you're not protected because you're not Seeing, you've, you've closed your eyes and fled from the light that is emanating from the tree of life. Because the, the tree of knowledge is not at one end of the garden <laughs> and the tree of life is at the other end of the garden. They're in the same place. You have the tree of knowledge in you. You also have the tree of life in you. You are the trees of knowledge and life. But what is the source of your daily decisions? Is it the tree of life? Or the tree of knowledge? If it's the tree of knowledge, then you're, you're deciding based on your own wisdom. And that will lead you to folly. But if your source is the tree of life, that will lead you to the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God is wisdom. It's not vanity. The wisdom of men, that's vanity. That's empty. That's folly. That's foolishness. That is the song of fools. But the wisdom of God, which comes from the tree of life, when God writes upon your heart and upon your mind, that's something you'll hear in quiet. That's what it says in Ecclesiastes. That's what it says 
in Ezekiel, that's what it says. You know, be still and know. Be quiet and know. Listen for the Holy Spirit. And because everything else is vanity. And so that's what they're telling us in Ecclesiastes. And that's, it goes, it's true today. And so he goes on after explaining that in his poetically cryptic way. Not that cryptic now that we've explained it to you. He goes into chapter 10. A little folly makes wisdom stink. And what is folly? What is foolishness? What was foolishness with Saul? He forced an offering. He didn't base the support of his military upon free will offerings. Which if you go back to Jehovah Nisi, the altars of Jehovah Nisi set up by Moses. Now that was after the fact, but it was to help take care of the needy, which is a part of the price of war. You create needy when you have war. People get injured. They just had a bill in Congress uh, that, you know, for weeks and weeks, uh, the Democrats have been saying that the, uh, the, the the Republicans don't care about the military. They don't care about the soldiers and all this stuff. Or they just voted on a bill to extend uh, benefits, probably medical benefits mostly, to the military and ex-military, you know, retired soldiers. And uh, all the Democrats voted against it. All the Republicans voted for it. Now, I'm not saying that to say that Republicans support the military because I don't really think they do. If if the Republicans were really supportive of the, the military, a strong military is to prevent war. That's why you have a strong military, so that people don't try to attack you and suck you into foreign wars. Well, the Republicans are pushing us into a foreign war, at least financially, with the, in the, now, in the Ukraine. All of us, you know, I shared on Facebook a couple of things that were said by, uh, Kennedy, and I'm not supportive of Kennedy either, but what he said, a lot of what he said was true. It's the things you won't hear in the media about the Ukraine. All this could have been easily avoided. But they didn't want to avoid it. They wanted to create a war. And if you really love the Ukrainian people, you would understand what the real issues are. You would have, you know, abided by the agreements that we made way back when the Soviets pulled out of all these countries. And the Minsk agreement, you would abide by that. But you didn't. Because they've been baiting this war. And unfortunately, they're in the midst of it. But they, they're depending on the wisdom of men. Not the wisdom of God. They're, they're all based on folly because that's, what happens when you start going down the road that Saul went down when he forced an offering? You end up with an industrial, a military-industrial complex. And it's controlling all the uh, narratives, just like your medical uh, companies are controlling the narrative in the news. I mean, look at... Look at the donations to your politicians. 
for running their campaigns, supposedly for running their campaigns. It's it's actually, we've talked about it before, a way in which they have graft and corruption. You need Jesus to go in there and turn over their tables. But you're not going to get that. Because you're not hearing the cries of your neighbor. You're not following the ways of Christ. You're not listening to the poor man's wisdom. You don't even want to hear the poor man's wisdom. Because you're not going to elect any leader that's going to change the road. Because all all of them, virtually sufficiently, I could say all of them, probably not 100%, but enough of them. I mean, there were some good guys on the Sanhedrin still. But generally speaking, they're corrupt. They're bought off. They're paid for. Because a little folly makes the ointment stink. And the fact is that folly didn't begin with politicians. It began with you desiring benefits at the expense of your neighbor. And unless you deal with that by repenting, seeking the kingdom of God that operates on faith, hope, and charity, not force, fear, and fealty, like all the other governments of the world, you're not going to be free. You're going to continue to go deeper and deeper into the bondage, deeper and deeper into the pit. I talked last week, I think it was last week or the week before, about the fact that, you know, you're never in the kingdom entirely. You're always seeking the kingdom and finding portions of it and incorporating that into your life. Or you're you're going the other way. You're getting farther away from the kingdom. But I said that it's an infinite kingdom and we are finite people. We never fully get it. There's always something new that God can teach us. Which is wonderful because we always have another goal, another effort. Which is why Roman soldiers, <laughs> many Roman soldiers were becoming Christians and, and worshiping in secret. But we'll talk about that in another program. And the symbols that they used to show that they were Christians. Cryptic symbols, just like the Romans. But, uh, and I'll bet you anything I can find evidence of that in in the epistles. But we, again, I'm being cryptic because I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail right now. You'll just have to listen to future programs. But this folly, this idea of forcing someone to contribute to what you want, which is what Saul did. That was the foolishness. That was the folly. That's what everybody does today. And they've accepted that. Christ did not. He told us not to do that. So the fool's wisdom fails. He digs a pit. And this is the point. is that It's an infinite kingdom towards... Heaven and the kingdom of God. Always another horizon. Another uh, many mansions to grow into. Well, the pit is endless as well. The bottomless pit of destruction. Don't dig dig a pit for your trap. That's what it tells you in Ecclesiastes. You know, the evil error of rulers is that they think that it's okay to force you 
to contribute to what they think you should contribute to. They take away your personal dominion, your personal right to choose. God gave you that right to choose and he gave you the tree of knowledge and he gave you the tree of life. But you should choose based upon the tree of life. And the tree of life comes from God. That's divine inspiration. In order for you to hear that divine inspiration, you have to quiet your ambition. You have to quiet your fears. You have to let go of your anger and your anxieties, and which is just fear. And, and wait upon the Lord, and the Lord will show you what to do. He that diggeth a pit shall fall into it. He who bites his neighbor shall be devoured. He who eats at the table of rulers with appetite for those benefits that were taken away from your neighbor, you shall be snared. It's the same thing over and over again. And and when you do that, you removeth the stone. Who is the stone? The rock. Isn't it Christ? You remove Christ. You, You remove yourself from Christ. Because you're looking to men who exercise authority one over that. This was the Corbin of the Pharisees. Set up by Herod and the Pharisees. Forced offerings. You had to sign up. You had to register for it. But then you had to pay in. It's a Corby system of taxation. Of your labor or whatever your labor produces. You can't be that way. You have to reject that way. But the way to reject that way is to turn to the way of Christ and go the way of Christ. Otherwise, you curse yourself and you no point in cursing the king. But we'll talk more about this and we'll get into chapter 11 when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. This uh, little review of 9 and 10, I think, is really important to understand the context of 11. Because 11 is going to be telling you what you can actually do and what we actually see them doing in the first century church. They are following the guidance that we see laid out. And Ecclesiastes, which is what Christ told us, what Paul told us, what the gospel was really all about. Because you have to be a doer of the word. You can't be a hearer only. You can't just say, Lord, Lord, I believe in Jesus and be saved and not be a doer of the word. Because when you're not a doer of the word, your mouth is telling us that you believe, but your deeds are telling us you do not believe. Because you're not doing what he said. And what you do matters. You're not going to earn your way into the kingdom. But you can block the Holy Spirit by doing contrary to the will of God. So, when we were looking in Ecclesiastes 10, it says a fool cannot be told. Because he won't hear. Because his eyes are darkened, his ears are dull. He would rather follow the blind... Then follow the truth. He's still fleeing the light in the garden. He's still hiding from God. Now he invents a God that he says he believes in. 
But it's not Jesus. Because he's not doing what Jesus said. And you know that. And they tell you that in the New Testament. If, you know, Paul goes to big long lists. If they're doing this, 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 they have no inheritance in the kingdom. And he's not talking about and, 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 but or. If you're just doing some of these things, you have no inheritance in the kingdom. And you need to understand that. Despite what you want to think, because what you want to think isn't important. It's what God thinks about what you're doing. And he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitan. So, but the fool can't hear this. He, he doesn't even know what the Nicolaitan is. He doesn't understand the sloth and idleness that comes from a system of social welfare by men who exercise authority. He doesn't understand that that table is a snare. And he doesn't want to understand because he would rather eat of that table and feel self-righteous than be a doer of righteousness. And so don't curse the king. It's not the king's fault. It's our fault. So are we going to listen to the advice which seems to be the beginning of this Ecclesiastes 11 is cast your bread upon the waters for thou shalt find it after many days. Well, where do we see that in the Old Testament? Earlier, you know, in the time of Exodus, when they were coming out of the bondage of the New World Order of Egypt, where they had to pay in X amount to the government because they were in bondage, and they were in bondage because they didn't hear the cry of their brother. And now the new pharaoh was making their bondage more numerous. He was appointing new taskmasters, more taskmasters, to force the offerings of the people to make sure that nobody was overlooked and to fill their treasuries. So, what 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 did they do that is similar to this? Cast thy bread upon the waters. It's actually the first fruit offerings. See, Moses didn't say, if something bad happens, everybody should give to help out. No, he says you have to give the first fruit. So it's already there in the, you know, you've already established the channels. You know, it's like putting in flood drains in your city. You don't put them in for the least amount of rain. You don't start putting them in when it starts to sprinkle. You have them in before the floods come. It's like building the ark. You build it before the flood comes. Don't be hammering nails while the... It's like the foolish virgins who established and squandered their oil and ended up having no oil and they had to go and get oil and they ended up getting locked out. Now, I don't know how they were getting oil. But I know that if we go back to number nine, the fly, a fly in the ointment, fly in the oil makes it stink. So, casting your bread upon the waters was the first fruits. The first fruits, as soon as you get something extra, you know, that you, you know, it's not always just what you don't need, because if you say what you don't need, then people will say, well, I need that. I need that. We all become hoarders. <laughs> you know, and of course, Ecclesiastes talks about that. 
the guy who covets his own wealth. He won't share it. That's a hoarder. You know, that, and it gets to such extreme, they're, they're hoarding junk. They're saving junk. Because they, they covet their hoard. But First Fruit says, no, get go, right out of the gate, you gotta be willing to share. And you, you share right out of the gate, you, right out of the gate, you're sending gifts to the Levites. You know, sheep, that's why they had lands in common. So if you had, okay, well I've got three lambs here and, and they're out of use that just had lambs and so I, I raise them up and then when the Feast of Tabernacle comes, I will take those three lambs and I'll give it to the Levites. That's my first fruits offering. It will go to them. And that, that jump starts the social welfare system. Still, 20% of what I, or 10% of what I produce is also should go. That's my tithing. And when I say 10%, I'm, I'm speaking in general. Generalities because you have to realize that the Israelites were gathered together with ten families. So if each family gave a portion which could come to around ten percent, they get to decide because according to Jesus, what do you owe? I owe ten percent. What can you pay? Well, I can only pay eight percent, paid in full. Because we don't exercise authority. We operate by faith, hope, and charity. As soon as you say, well, no, you have to give more. No, you get to decide. And we don't come back and police you. But people will know if you're being selfish. You, you won't, you won't keep it a secret. But you're casting in that process of sending those first fruits to the Levites. You're casting your bread upon the waters. For thou shalt find it after many days. You're hoping that by creating a system of social welfare that operates by charity, not, not just a local congregation, you know, that's, if you're gonna do that, then you're just gonna go into your little, little chamber and you're gonna throw the bread out of a little, you know, bucket of water in your living room. <laughs> no. You have to cast it upon the waters. That's all the people. People are waters. And, and you're doing it in a network of tens, hundreds, and thousands, which Christ commanded that his ministers make the people organize themselves into. Somebody asked me the other day, he's been listening for a while. That's the that thing I wanted to bring up. I had lots of calls this week. And, you know, I don't turn people down on the calls. They call and I try to answer. And, which is actually pretty miraculous because our phones have all been out. That's another thing this week. Is that uh, all the landlines in the valley have gone down. Not just in the valley, I should say. All the way to Lakeview, the landlines are down. Uh, so that's 75 miles worth of uh, ground that have no landlines. And then, of course, that puts a huge burden on the cell towers for people because everybody's using the cell towers. And a lot of the landlines were also providing Internet. Uh, 
through a new company. I mean, we still call it CenturyLink, but it was, uh, it was a fire. Burned up. Some of the line was above ground through some of the rough terrain, and it, and it got burned up. So, but to us, that's this, uh, you know, this, it's good practice for us to learn to do without these things. But, uh, someday the whole nation may have to do without these things. And you won't be able, you know, you complain about what they tell you on the internet. Well, don't worry, that may stop. <laughs> but you don't have the alternative system in order. They want you dependent upon the system so they can jerk it away from you. I want you dependent upon the kingdom of God. Dependent on the tree of life. I want you to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and start thinking about caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. Caring about your neighbor's rights as much as you care about yourself. We've gotten away from that. We've gotten away from that and it has broke down the social bonds of a free society. Which is why we can't do much about the rulers who besiege us. Because we're not living like the poor man. Wisdom. Who in the quiet of his own heart and mind knew what to do. So you have to do that. If you don't, you're going to be a victim of whatever comes down the road. You can't think just your local congregation. You have to think kingdom. And like I was saying, the people who call me and call me and call me, a lot of, a lot of different people. I mean, we had a flurry of activity. More people bought the books in the last week. More people have uh, visited and commented on the YouTube pages. So some sort of, it's a minor increase, but it's definitely a trend of increase. Well, they start calling me more. Fortunately, my phones have been out. But some people know my cell phone, so they've been calling me on that. But uh, we have an afternoon show. That we allow call-ins. Save it for that show. Let's do it on that show. We've got two to three hours on that show. Let's do it on that show. And then when we have that conversation, you stay anonymous. It can maybe help somebody else. Why do I have to repeat it with everybody? Let's do it on the show. Ask your questions there. So, uh, and join the network and you'll know when... Those are scheduled. So, but now the second verse. Give a portion to seven and also to eight. For thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. So he's talking about, you know, casting your bread. To, it helps you because of all those things that we just talked about that were in nine and ten and actually in the earlier verses. But now he's talking about casting your bread. A portion of that bread, of, in whatever form it takes, to seven. So where did we ever see that? Where have we ever seen anybody do that? Well, of course, in the New Testament, Acts 6-3. We see Peter calling the people who were already organized in small groups of ten families that worked together in ranks of tens and fifties and hundreds as Christ commanded and, and that was one of the questions that somebody called well where does it say that in the Bible and they're supposedly studying it and they got the books well I quote it all the time 
I tell you all the time. But it's got to stick in your own mind. But, and, and you go look at our article on commanded, because Christ only uses this word commanded in relationship to people one time, and he says they have to sit down, make the people sit down, make the people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Not taking anything away from you. He's saying that's what you need to do. You need to organize in that fashion, and you, and you need to do it now because the clock is ticking. Christ commanded to look out amongst themselves to choose seven men. Oh, actually, I, I read that wrong. There's fifty and a hundred uh, as Christ commanded, but Peter was saying to look out amongst themselves and choose seven men. And I always thought that was funny, but it wasn't until I don't know ten years ago that I actually. Made the connection. And I made the connection because Ecclesiastes talks about seven men. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out amongst your, you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, I've had pastors tell me, well, they were waiting on tables to make sure that everybody got their share. They were talking about the Greeks not getting their share. Was this local Greeks? No, it was talking about Greeks in grace. And then we know who some of these seven men are. And we know that they were often from well-to-do families, well-to-do educations, and were all over the Mediterranean. They weren't all in one town, waiting on tables, serving, you know, uh, unleavened bread. To the poor. It was part of a system to make sure that they could provide for the needy. To set up these tables. They talk about these tables in Acts 6-2. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God to serve tables. So, we're told, well, that, that these these seven guys were waiters that went around and made sure everybody got a fair amount of the bread for today. You know, Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Nicholas, uh, the proselyte from Antioch and Philip and Stephen, of course, who gets executed. Why? Because he's receiving funds. They're giving a portion to these seven. And they're able to move these funds around all over the Roman Empire to provide a system of social welfare for the needy so that the Greeks won't be neglected, including the Galatians and the Corinthians and all the other Greeks. And we see Paul going and collecting funds from these guys have it already collected by the time I come there and then he's transporting it. Why Paul is transporting it? Because he's Romeos. He's not subject to administrative law. They can't try him at Roman courts. They already can't tax that money because of the rules that we've already explained in other books and other programs that Augustus put into place. He can go through any port of entry and they can't touch it. 
But now he's created an institution of seven men. That institution is still available for us to create today. But you won't come together in tens, hundreds, and thousands. Because you think you're in the kingdom already. But you don't have any system of social welfare that can spread all over the world from here to Europe to here to Australia to here to China. You don't have that. You're not organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands like Christ commanded. You might be organized in ten families. But where's your hundreds? Where's your thousands? Where's your ten thousands? Where's your hundred and forty-four thousands? Now what we're talking about is a voluntary system of charity. But it's real. Real men were chosen for these positions. He goes on, you know, we can read in Luke 19.23, Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into a bank at my coming. I might have required mine own with usury. Why, why did I put that in there? The same word that is translated bank in Luke 19.23 is translated tables in Acts 6.2. And he was right that it's not right that the ministers of God go off and create a bank. So they created something else where there were seven men even eight. And there's a reason why the eight. And I won't explain that on the air. <laughs> but anyway. But you could do that. You can do that right now. But you have to be organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands in order to do it. And, you know, the money changers. What were the money changers? They were the porters of the temple. And when we get into Ezra, they talk about porters. Where did the porters come from? The porters are appointed... By the king. And the porters can be fired by the king. And the money changers are the porters, the gatekeepers of the temple. But we're looking for a temple without hands. Which we will get into also when we do our study on Ezra. But that temple built without hands, because that was the big debate with Ezra and the people coming out of Babylon and going to Jerusalem and we're going to build the temple according to the ancients but then they built this other temple and men wept because it wasn't according to the ancients. It was according to Solomon. And they didn't go back to their tents. They went back to their cities. Do you know what the significance of that is? Well, we'll cover that again in Ezra. But here we see them setting up an institution by men you trust. Look at amongst yourself. You find men you trust. We will appoint them over this matter. Who will appoint them? I'll give you a hint. Number eight. <laughs> but it's it's a system not based. It, it's not it's not a system like banks. It is like banks, but not like banks, because it's charitable institution. And it operates in charity. But it also has access to the tables of the empire. And I recently shared with the minister's group some of the things that I discovered. Which I kind of knew before, but was a reminder of something that came up, thrown in my path by God. And I shared it with them. And of course, if you're sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, all you have to do is ask them, what, what was he talking about? 
<laughs> and they'll tell you. But if you're not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, you still will sit there with the deer in the headlight look on. What's he talking about? What's he talking about? That will be absolutely essential and necessary in the days to come. There's a lot of things coming down the road. COVID was just the tip of an iceberg that is going to sink your ship if you don't find the real rock in the way of Christ. And you have to turn around. But anyway, we have an article up on Seven Men. So we're... You can go and, and read that. And there's all kinds of links in that page. So give a portion to seven and also to eight because you know us not what evil shall be upon the earth. Well, I can tell you there's a lot of evil coming. There's a lot of evil already here. And a lot of you are a part of the evil. And it's folly. But if you repent and start doing what Christ actually said to do, which was what we see them doing in Acts... You know, you got your little congregation out somewhere, but are you a part of the tens, hundreds, and thousands? Are, are you a part of the kingdom? They were able to send aid all over the Roman Empire and beyond. That was one of the things. The Roman soldiers who were secretly becoming Christians, we find evidence of them in England. And, and I've given you that evidence in our study on Paul. And But there's more, a lot more. That we have correspondence where, and actually some of it etched in stone and mosaics, where Roman soldiers were marrying Christian women by intent. Why? Because deep down they were Christians. Roman soldiers were going to underground churches and worshiping in those churches. Not worshiping like you do in your modern churches. Real worship, where they were giving their first fruits and casting their bread upon the waters and taking care of one another. Because one thing that a Roman soldier believed in was hard work. You reap what you sow. And like the Roman centurion who had faith. Because he knew like that we do our duty. And what is your duty? Your duty in pure religion is to take care of the needy of society. Through faith, hope, and charity. Only through faith, hope, and charity. Because a little folly, a little foolishness, a little forced offerings makes your oil stink. You cannot come into the wedding feast with stinky oil. I can tell you a story about that, but I'll save that for the afternoon show. (laughs) Ask me about the stinky oil. (laughs) If the clouds be full of rain... They empty themselves upon the earth. And if the trees fall toward the south or toward the north in the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. Bad things are going to happen. He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. What does he mean? Well, I've sown whole fields by hand with seeds. I've gone back and done all the things the old way. I've, I've, I do it with a tractor now. <laughs> when I was younger, I said, well, let's try that. And then we went to horse-drawn equipment. We tried that. So we know how to do all that. But if you're sowing, you know, if you're doing 
with a farm drill, it's it's going right into the ground, and there's a little uh, corrugated protective thing that gets that seed right down where you want it to go. But if you're sowing by hand, like you see in the old pictures, if it's a windy day, uh, I can do it with a little breeze and still get the seeds where they need to go. But if it's really windy, it's futile. You can't do it. So, he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. And I'm going to, don't cut your hay if it looks like it's going to rain. <laughs> so, yeah. So, as thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. Which is why you need to learn to be quiet and still and listen to that still small voice so you know what you need to do. I'm giving you the basics. God will give you the detail. We'll have to come back and finish this after another brief break. So come right back. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're in, uh, let's read that verse 6. Again, in the morning, sow thy seed. So this is, first off, you put out the effort. And in the evening, withhold not thine hand. For thou knowest not whether shall prosper, either this or that. Or whether they both shall be alike good. So what are they talking about? Both shall be alike good. I mean, even it sounds like a funny way to even say, you know, shall be actually is not even in the text. That's added in there by the translators in order to try to create some kind of a flow. But sowing in the morning, well, there's nothing to harvest in the evening if you sowed in the morning. So they're talking about First, morning has to do with doing it first. That you put out the effort first, which is what the first fruits is about, which is casting your bread upon the waters is about. That you you have to invest. You have to invest in the kingdom yourself first. In order to exercise hope, remember it's operating by faith, hope, and charity. So you have to hope that it comes back to you. There's not an entitlement. It's why you cannot earn salvation. See, in the world you say, well, if I send in my tax dollars, then they will protect me in the case of I need Social Security. They they don't really, they call it an entitlement, but there's no legal guarantee that they will pay you any benefit ever. The system is built to make you dependent upon them, to make them the Son of God for you. It's It's public religion. That's the system. It's a table that is a snare and a trap and gives them more power and more control and weakens you as an individual and as a people because it degenerates the bonds, the social bonds of a free society. And you've been doing it now for almost a hundred years or more. Generation after generation, you have been dependent upon men who exercise authority to take care of the needy of your society. To even take care of your own parents. 
And and by that process, which is the Corbin of the Pharisees, you have made the word of God to none effect. You have to turn around, think differently, and go back the other way. And the way you do that is you sow in the morning. You cast your bread upon the waters. Yeah, and you may have to pick seven men, even eight. Look out amongst yourselves and find men you trust. But there is no yourselves because you're not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. You're not learning who you can trust. Anybody can sit down. It's a free assembly. And you come together. You don't know who you can trust. You don't have the right to exclude people. You have a right to choose who you want to trust. But in order to know who you should trust, you're going to have to listen to that still, small voice. So it doesn't do any good to do this out of fear of the new world order or or to curse the king. You have to do it out of love. You have to do it out of that love for one another. To love not only... Somebody was asking me about who's my neighbor. Well, you don't know who your neighbor is in the course of time. Because somebody can be your enemy today, but your neighbor tomorrow. And so if you hate him today, you you prevent it. You don't hate him. You leave judgment to God. When the good Samaritan helped the guy in the ditch, that was not his neighbor. That was a Jew. He's a Samaritan. But the Samaritan helped him. Besides, we are not to oppress even the stranger in our midst. Love them all. Let God sort it out. So in verse 7 he says, Truly the light is sweet and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. But is it pleasant to see that we have been going the wrong way for a hundred years? For generations? We have been pursuing the ways of FDR and LBJ and the covetous practices of men who exercise authority one over the other, the fathers of the earth, we've been praying to for our daily bread, not to the Father in heaven, who operates the faith, hope, and charity. You've been praying to the fathers in in Sydney, in Washington, D.C., in Ontario, or wherever. Those fathers of the earth. Go read our article on fathers to find out who are the fathers of the earth. But if you repent and turn around, then you can sow in the morning. You can cast your bread upon the waters. You can pick seven. But you have to come together because you want to learn what it means to care about one another as much as it is to care about yourself. Verse 8. But if a man live many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness. For they shall, for they shall be many. All that cometh is vanity. There are going to be days, dark days. There are going to be hard times. You don't know what's coming. But if we, if we run back there to verse, uh, five. As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit. We don't know what God's plan is. 
We know that it rains on the just and unjust. We have to trust in God. You know what, what's the old story, the joke that they tell? Well, we'll save that if we have time at the end. Or maybe you can ask me about the joke about God, where were you? You can ask me that on the afternoon program. I'll tell you that story. Therefore, remove sorrow from thy heart and put away evil from thy flesh. For the childhood and the youth are vanity. So we're supposed to put away evil. What evil? Covetous practices. That's evil. Aren't covetous practices evil? What else are we supposed to put away? He says we're supposed to put away sorrow. What sorrow? What sorrow is he talking about? Well, the the word there that he has is a word that is translated grief, provocation, wrath, sorrow, anger, angry, indignation. It's translated all these different ways. Its definition is anger. Put away anger. Isn't that what Christ said? It's actually composed of the word that we that we see that Jesus refers to, raka. You know, if you if you still have anger with your brother, leave your sacrifice and go and make peace with your brother. It won't do any good to put your sacrifice on the altar if you don't make peace with your brother. How many times do I see congregations where people are angry at certain people in the congregation? And they're, and they're not at peace. They're not still in their heart. They're full of anger. If you're full of anger towards that person, judgment of that person, you don't know why people think the way they do. You know, I talked about that in the last programs. How, you know, I, I know people who've had trauma throughout their life and they don't know how to let it go. Well, forgiveness. And then you test that forgiveness with charity. And there's no better situation to do that outside of the family than in a free assembly. A free assembly that is sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Not self-righteousness, His righteousness. So that's what we need to do. So, in the side panel, we talk about casting your bread upon the waters. And so, it's not about your immediate local congregation or community. It's, it's, it's what we see going on in Acts. Where, where they're, they're leaving, you know, Syria or Galatia's donating in Corinth and, and they're going to all these places because these famines swept across the country. There will be famines sweeping across our own country someday. There's certainly going to be a famine in the Ukraine, the bedbrask of Europe, that is having war going on with thousands and thousands of Ukrainians having fled the country. Men not fixing their balers or their, or their seed drills and planting the crops. You know, Now, I know the upper echelons of governments all over the world have been stockpiling food, but it isn't for you. It appears they want less of you 
so that they can control you better. But they can control you better because you didn't come together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and create the social bonds of a free society, an intentional community. I hear people like Dr. Malone talking about intentional communities. And I've responded on Twitter and I respond on Facebook. You should be a part of the network finding out what we have shared already on what Ecclesiastes really means, what Exodus was really all about, what Acts was really all about, what the seven men were really doing. And then start sharing it with other people to get them to sit down the tens, hundreds, and thousands too. And stop shaking your fists at the governments and the New World Order and the World Economic Forum. Yeah, I point out some of the things they say, some of the things they want to do. I'm not even going to tell you what they got planned for tomorrow or the next day. I hint at it from time to time. And I might tell some people at the Burning Bush Festival coming up at the 1st of September, if you want to come to that. For thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. You don't really don't want to know all the details. You you want to know what God wants you to do today in this moment. And you have to turn around and seek that kingdom in order to do that. This whole idea was touched on in Ecclesiastes 8, verses 14 and 17, Ecclesiastes 9, as we just reviewed. And certainly in Acts 6, 3, where Peter picks 7, because we don't know what's going to happen. To set the tables, the banks. Well, we don't really want to start banks, so it's deceptive to say banks. But we can see that just like they closed off your gym and your restaurant and shut down all these businesses, they're going to do it with banks. But there's an alternative. But I shared that with the ministers. I don't share that with on the radio. If you want to know, you have to get a minister. You have to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands like Christ commanded me to make you do. So, I mean, we give everything away for free anyway. That's the, you know, the, all the books are online for free. Download them. You don't have to even sign in. You don't have to give me your email. Nothing. You have to seek a little bit. If you're on the network, they'll tell you where it's at. But if you don't want to come together because you just care about your own salvation, then you will have no salvation. Stephen had to care about others. Stephen was put to death because we don't know what darkness will come. But he stayed faithful. He understood how the kingdom worked. And he was willing to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not to save himself, but to save others. If you are led by what the world is doing, then you may be afraid to do anything. Because the world operates in fear. That's, that's, it depends upon your fear. That was, that was a study that came out recently that they were looking at the rise in anxiety and trauma and fear that was literally paralyzing people. Young kids, teenagers, adults, all created by this pandemic 
which did, told you to do the exact opposite of what you should do. You know, hunker down in place. Don't contact your neighbors. Don't, don't be friends. No, you want to do the absolute opposite. But you want to do it wisely according to the ways of God. But you don't even know what those ways are. But now after this show, Maybe you have a little bit of an inkling if you've never heard this before. But where you really will learn is when you start to do it. When you start sowing the seeds in the morning. And not withholding your hand in the harvest. Where you share your fruits. And it will take some considerable effort on on the part of all of us. To find out who we can trust. And there's a lot... of us that we have to learn and learn about ourselves because we need to get back to the light we need to walk in the light walk in the judgment of God because that was the first thing when we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil we hid from God And, and we fled the tree of life the tree of light the tree of understanding and like I said, and like Ecclesiastes says, is that you cannot tell this to a fool. And I hope I'm not talking to a fool. Will you see this? So you have to remove sorrow, which is anger, and vexation, and put evil away. What is evil? I mean, that word shows up 663 times. <laughs> Translated evil 442 times. Wickedness 59 times. Wicked 25 times. Mischief 21 times. Remember, fool brings mischief. Also, we see this word noisome and grievous. Well, we see that in Mark of the Beast. The Mark of the Beast is noisome and grievous. Just like the new Pharaoh is going to be grievous on the people. Put extra burdens on them. But the only reason he could do that is because they were willing to sell their brother into bondage. Are you willing to take a bite out of your brother so that you can have free stuff? That's evil. Are you willing to covet your neighbor's goods in order to get what you want? And to do it through governments that exercise authority one over the other. Yeah, I saw, uh, and I, I might have shared it, I might have just saved it, but uh, shared it on Facebook. It was Ocasio-Cortez says, who says that government does too much? Whoever says that? Well, then this guy from, I think he's from Louisiana, bald-headed, very outspoken guy. And uh, he's, he says, I'll say it. <laughs> I don't want the government doing these things for me. Well, the fact is, my list, I'm sure, is longer than his. I'm sure Christ's list is longer than his. Because the government doesn't do anything for you today that they're not taking away from your neighbor or taking away from your neighbor's children and your children by cursing them with more and more debt. We're way down the rabbit hole of evil. And we need to turn around and go back the other way, which is the way of righteousness. 
So are you are you ready to go back, Matthew five twenty two? But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And we can look at that without a cause. Because we're still leave judgment to God. Whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall which comes from that word rake or reke shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So it is foolish to desire the benefits of men who exercise authority one over the other. It is foolish to bite one another. But it is also foolish to accuse others of doing that when we ourselves have not repented and sowed in the morning, cast our bread upon the waters and gathered in the tens, hundreds, and thousands to take care of the needy of our society through faith, hope, and charity. If we're not doing that, you can expect everything else to fall apart. We need to be diligent. Ecclesiastes 9.10 Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it. With thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whether thou goest. This is why Roman centurions were becoming Christians. They were doers. They needed to be doers. They needed to be workers. The people on the free bread of Rome, they, not so much. You know, not so much. They have been weakened. Now, that's their baggage. They could repent. We have to give them the opportunity of repenting. We have to be doers of the work. Because Christ said so. Galatians 2.10 Only they would that we should remember the poor. The same which also was forward to do. That word forward there. That's that, that word that has to do with being diligent. Ephesians 4.3 Endeavoring. There's that word for diligence. To keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Thessalonians 2.17 But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored. Again, there's that word, endeavored. The more abundantly to see your face with great desire. So he's talking about this idea of endeavoring. And that word endeavor, it, it sometimes hasten or make haste, but it really means to be diligent. And it is the word that when they say study to show thyself approved, one time that word is translated study, but it means to be diligent, to show thyself approved. No, nothing wrong with studying. I think you should all study the website, find out where what pages answer what questions, and then go on social media and answer those questions with those pages. You can cut and clip. It's, nothing's copyrighted. But you need to share it with one another. But being diligent is a very big part of seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Second Corinthians 8.17 For indeed He accepted the exhortations, but being more forward, more diligent, 
of his own accord, he went unto you. And of course, that where it says study, that's Second Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved, which actually means to be diligent to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Dividing the word of truth. Are you dividing the word of the truth? Or are you dividing the spoils of the world by eating at the table of men who exercise authority one over the other? Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. He talks about this in, in Timothy. We need to turn around and go the other way. Not the way of sloth which they just spoke about in Ecclesiastes, but the way of diligence. Become doers of the word. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent, there's that word, in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. Confidence to do what? He's talking to Corinthians. Although he he chased the Corinthians, warning them that the Galatians gave more than you guys did. <laughs> but yet still, he just did that to, because that's part of our job. So please don't think that you're in the kingdom because you think you're in the kingdom. Be a doer of the word. And not an isolated doer in your own little group and your own little people that you meet, but a real doer of the word in a kingdom fashion. Because we're coming up to the time when we'll find ourselves down on the shores of the Red Sea with all the armies of the Pharaoh and more coming down on us. So until then, peace on your house. And may God be with us and you. Join us on the network. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.